Well, if you have a Bible there in front of you, if you want to turn to the book of Revelation, the last book in your Bible, we are starting a new series uh, this morning, Lord willing, going through the entire book of Revelation. And we're going to look at the first three verses of the book, and I'll invite you to stand as we read God's Holy Word this morning. Give ear to the reading of God's Holy Word. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. So we're finally starting our new series through the book of Revelation. Uh, There may not be a a book in the entire Bible that has been the subject of so much thorough study and yet so much disagreement and even dispute between sincere believers. And many, uh, you know, believers often approach this book in a lot of different ways. Many sincere Bible-believing Christians approach this book uh, with kind of a sense of trepidation and more than a little bit of, of hesitancy to attempt to read and study through it at all as if its contents were somehow above and beyond their ability to ever understand it rightly. After all, if you think about Revelation, what do you think about? You think of strange images and visions, uh, and not, you know, you add to that, add to that the fact that there's so much disagreement among even reputable scholars can't seem to agree on, on what they read about and what they, how they see what's written in in its pages. And it's kind of as if the ordinary Christian And maybe even the scholar is in need of some kind of special decoder ring in order to understand and decipher the true meaning of the book of Revelation. If any of you have one, please pass it along to me. I seem to have misplaced mine. Others seem to approach the book of Revelation with with kind of a, a, a great deal of interest, enthusiasm and curiosity as if it were a kind of a puzzle or a riddle to be solved, as if unlocking its secrets were somehow to enable one to beyond the inn or have the inside scoop that other people just don't have. And a lot of us, it's kind of like gossip. You know, you want to know what other people don't know. Well, sometimes people approach the book of Revelation and eschatology in general as kind of sort of like a holy gossip. Like, I want to know what other people are ignorant of so I can be above them in my knowledge of it. Now, the zeal of, of people like that that want to study this great book of the Bible is commendable. But I think you and I have to be careful to resist the temptation to study this or any other part of the Bible as if it were mere fodder for intellectual stimulation, like a game of trivial pursuit. There's no trivia in the Bible, certainly not in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation was not given to us in order to satisfy our curiosity about the future. It was not given to us to satisfy our curiosity about what is to come. Some of the biggest bestsellers you might know in the book industry in the last 50 years have been about this book and the subject of eschatology and the end times. Some of you, if you're old, old, old like me, you might remember The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey and Carol Carlson, first published all the way back in 1970, went on to sell, according to estimates, almost 30 million copies. 30 million copies. I even remember, I don't remember who it was, but I remember somebody somewhere saying that it was the best-selling book, not just the best-selling Christian book, the best-selling Christian, best-selling book of the entire decade of the 1970s. If you were to tally all the books written, not, of course, the Bible, but all the, the books published at that time, 
the one that sold the most copies was the late great planet Earth by Tim, by uh, Hal Lindsey. Likewise, the more recent series by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins. Some of you might have read some of those. <laughs> Left Behind totals 16 volumes and thousands and thousands of pages all about this subject and this Many of it is, is about this book. According to Wikipedia, you know, if you want to know anything, that's the most reputable source. Not really, but uh, Wikipedia says total sales for the series uh, left behind have surpassed 80 million copies. 80 million copies of those 16 volumes totaled together. And think about that. Add that. Add that to all the other books on the subject, all the movies on the subject, and it seems pretty clear that there's a great deal of interest in this topic of the end times or the last things. Sounds like eschatology is a big money maker. Maybe we should have started this series a few years ago. Uh, kidding. But uh, I only wish that the best-selling books on this subject had been written from what we think of as a Reformed and truly biblical perspective. Of course, the Reformed view of eschatology is probably not very well suited for entertainment media, it's not designed to satisfy the curious, the curious, but it's rather to comfort and exhort the saints, that's you, to endurance and faithfulness in time of trial and tribulation after all. That's the purpose of Revelation, isn't it? Why did God give us this book? Why is it the last book in our Bibles? It's given to us for the purpose of comforting and exhorting and encouraging the saints to endure in time of trial and tribulation. If you think about it, that's, that's in a lot of ways, that's the, the reason for much of what we think of as eschatology in the Bible, not just the book of Revelation itself. Now, we're going to, this morning, we're going to look at the first few verses. We're going to kind of dip our toes in the water. We're not going to get too far into the book just yet. We're going to start off small and just look at those verses at the beginning. Often they're called the prologue of the book. And we're going to hopefully see three things. You know, the book of Revelation loves numbers. There's numbers all through it. The number three is very prevalent well, we're going to look at three things, Lord willing, from this, these opening verses. And the first thing we're going to see is the source, the source of Revelation. Secondly, we're going to see the subject of Revelation. What is it about? The subject. And third, we're going to see the blessing of Revelation, of the book of Revelation. Well, the first thing John tells us about here is the source. Where did it come from? Where did we get it from? The source of the book of, of Revelation. Look at verses 1 through 2. John says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So the first thing John tells us about it in some detail is, where did he get this from? What's the source of this book that's full of pictures and visions? and all kinds of things. And the first thing we see here is it's a revelation of Jesus Christ, the first words of the book. That is, it's from Jesus Christ. It's not just from John. Now, all of what does 2 Timothy 3.16 tell us? All Scripture is breathed out by God. In other words, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. The Holy Spirit worked through the human writers to produce what we have in our Bibles. But revelation is certainly that, but it kind of goes beyond that, doesn't it? You know, we read the Ten Commandments every every first Sunday of the, of the month, and you know you're familiar. Sometimes you're so familiar with the passage that you you kind of gloss over certain phrases. What's the first thing you read in the Ten Commandments? The Lord spoke these words. God, God spoke these words. Now, all the all the Bible's God's word, but the Ten Commandments 
It's like there's a big flashing red light above them saying, God actually himself said this out loud to be written. It's, it's beyond just normal inspiration that God normally does. Well, same thing can be said of the book of Revelation. It's not just given through inspiration through the Apostle John, although it certainly is inspired. It's the revelation of Christ himself. He is the one who gave it. He is the one who gave it to John. It says it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, quote, which God gave him. So God gave this particular revelation to Christ to give to us through John. Now that might confuse some people. After all, the Lord Jesus Christ is God the Son, isn't he? He's the very Son of God. How is it that God the Father can give God the Son something that God the Son does not already possess? Have you ever wondered about that? Is that that might make some people a little bit uh, confused. How How is that possible? After all, Jesus, as God, has all things. The great Puritan writer William Perkins, sometimes called the father of English Puritanism, he is a, a mammoth figure in, in the history of theology, especially in the 17th century. Uh, is helpful here. He has an exposition or a commentary on the first three chapters of Revelation, and this is what he says here about this subject. He says, We must conceive of Christ in two ways. First, as God. Secondly, as mediator and head of the church. In other words, think of him as he is as God and as he is according to his incarnation as the Messiah. As Christ is God, the Father gives him nothing. For so he is of himself the same with the Father and has all things belonging unto him that the Father has, excepting personal properties. In other words, the Father is not the Son, is not the Spirit. There's three persons in, in, the, in the Trinity. And is no way inferior to the Father. Re, neither receives anything from him, but gives all things as well as the Father does. In other words, he, he shares they are of one substance, equal in power and glory, as our catechism says. But, he says, but yet as Christ is mediator, he is not God simply, but God incarnate or God made man, and so, it, and so is said to receive of his Father in respect of his manhood, that is, his humanity. As he himself confesses, Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, Christ says, all power or all authority has been given to me. In other words, God the Father gave the Messiah, his Son as the Messiah, all authority or power. He continues, and Paul says, God gave him a name above all names. Well, he gave him that name above all names according to his humanity as the Messiah, as the Christ. He also goes on to quote, he says, He received of his Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, as says Peter, Acts chapter 2, verses 33. So you see this happens over and over again in the New Testament. It talks about God giving Christ things. He says, And God made him both Lord and Christ, Acts two, thirty-six. And so God gave him this revelation in this place. It's the same pattern you see throughout the New Testament is what William Perkins has to tell us. And so for, for John to say that God gave this revelation to Jesus Christ to show to his servants the things that must soon take place is not in any way to de- deny or downplay the divinity of Christ, that he is the Son of God, that he is the same substance, equal in power and glory. Far from it, it's to, it's to show him as the Messiah, as our mediator. It's to think of Christ according to his incarnation, according to his human nature, and as he is in his office as our mediator, as the one mediator between God and men, 
the man Christ Jesus. That, that, is the, that is the way he is being spoken of here when it says that God gave this to him to give, to show to his church. Now God gave this revelation to Jesus Christ who then sent it to his servant John by means of what? His angel. His servant John and his angel. Now think about this. Even the very angels of God are Christ's angels. Even the the angels of God, if you were to see an angel as John does in this book, you'd fall on your face in fear. There's a reason they always have to say fear not when talking to God's redeemed people because even God's redeemed people fall flat on their face afraid for their lives when they see one. Those angels belong to Christ. They are nothing compared to Christ. They are his angels. They belong to him. They serve him. One of the main themes in the book of Revelation you might know is that things are not what they seem. To our eyes of flesh, things seem one way. Revelation wants to show us another way to look at things, the right way to see things. They aren't always what they seem, and that what much of what happens in history of the world and in the life of the church involves things that you can't see with the eyes of flesh. Well, angels certainly fall into that category, and they figure prominently throughout the book of Revelation. This will not remotely be the last time you see the word angel in this book. In fact, there are at least 67 references to angels, the use of the word angel, uh, of some kind in the book of Revelation. So 22 chapters, 67 times we are we hear or read the word angel or angels. Now, what, what did the Apostle John do? How did John pass this along to, to us? What did he do in passing it on to us, this revelation of Jesus Christ? Uh, it's not only inspired by the Holy Spirit and inerrant as the Word of God, but it's also given directly to him by Jesus Christ through an angel. What is it that John did in giving it to us? Verse 2 says, He bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So he was shown these visions, and what did he do? He testified to all that he saw. You know, take a memo, John. Well, John took a memo of everything he saw and is passing it on to us here in the very last book we have in Scripture. And the very fact that this book is Holy Scripture and the very Word of God alone, that ought to be enough to persuade us, to give us motivation to read it, hear it, study it, take it to heart and take heed to what it says. But the very fact that it's given to us from Christ himself ought to make us sit up and take notice. The book of Revelation, in a sense, you know, we read, we read the epistles of Paul, for instance, in the, in the New Testament. Now, they're inspired by God. They are the word of God. They are to be treated as the word of God. But in a sense, this is, this is kind of like that on steroids. This is kind of, Revelation is an epistle from Christ himself. And so we should look at it that way and take heed to what it says. Just like we read in the, in the chapters that follow, chapters 2 and 3, we, we read of, of Christ's seven letters to the seven churches. He writes epistles within an epistle. But this whole book, including those seven letters, is an epistle to his church. It's an epistle to, to us, to you and to me. So we ought to, it really ought to make us sit up and take notice and take careful Notice and attention of what he says to us here in its pages. Well, that brings us to the second thing, the subject. The subject of the book of Revelation. What is the book of Revelation about? Maybe you're asking yourself that when you, whenever, as soon as I bring up the book, we're going to study Revelation, you think, I have no idea what it's about. What does John tell us in the prologue? 
that the book of Revelation is primarily about. For it says there in verse 1, the revelation of what or of who? The revelation of Jesus Christ. I think those opening words point us in the right direction. The first thing is a person. Revelation is about primarily is about Jesus Christ. Now remember the book, the, the title of the book, the book Revelation comes from the Greek word apocalypse. And we think of apocalypse, what do you think of? Destruction, you know, fire raining from the sky, something. We, we use the word apocalyptic in that kind of an end of the world kind of fashion. But the word apocalypse means revelation or revealing or unveiling. It's as, as if there's a veil over something and, and Jesus pulls it back. Remember the Wizard of Oz? Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Well, this is God pulling the curtain back, giving a revelation to Jesus Christ, his son, for us to pull that curtain back and to show us what he's doing in the world, what his son, Jesus Christ, is doing in the world. That's, that's what he's doing here. He's not, he's not covering it with these weird pictures and images. He's unveiling it if we have the eyes to see it. And what is being unveiled or revealed in this book? It's Jesus Christ. More than that, but he's the primary subject of the book of Revelation. The book is a revelation of Jesus Christ, not just in that it belongs to him, not just in the fact that it's from him, that he gave it to John by means of his angel, not just that God gave it to him, as verse 1 says, but that it's primarily about him. Just like the entire Bible is about Jesus Christ, if we understand it. Rightly, So if you and I are to read and hear and heed the words of this book rightly, one of the things we have to do is to keep our eyes open for what it says to us in its pages about Jesus Christ the Lord himself. And it has a lot to tell us about him in its pages. Let's look at the first chapter. Christ is the grand subject of the first chapter, to say the least, as well as the rest of the book. What does it say? It says in verse 5, it describes him as, quote, the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. That might be the theme of the whole book. If you, That's the theme of Psalm 2. Christ, the risen and ascended and reigning king of kings, who's reigning over all things right now. What does it call him? He's the ruler of the kings on earth. He's the king of kings and lord of lords now, not at some other point later in the future. Verses 5 to 6 describes him also as, quote, him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and as the one who, quote, made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Just in the first six verses, this picture of Christ is painted for us that should get us to, to drop down on our knees and worship him. Not only that, uh, he's the, the ruler of kings on earth, verse 5. He's also, verse 7, is coming with the clouds. What does that mean? We've seen that in the book of Mark. Coming with clouds is a picture of judgment. So Christ is the king of the, the ruler of the kings on the earth. He's also the one who judges. And he's going to judge, quote, those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail or mourn on account of him. Not only that, but it says in verse 8, Jesus himself says this, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. There's no question about who Jesus is in the book of Revelation. He's not sort of God. He's not almost God. He's God, and he's God incarnate as our mediator and as our Savior. Not only that, but you think about the verses later on in chapter 1 when it says that describes Christ Jesus as, quote, one like a son of man whose hair, his hair 
is white like snow. His eyes, verse 14, were like a flame of fire. He holds the seven stars in his hand from whose mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword and whose face was like the sun shining in full strength. Paul knew something about that on the Damascus Road. In other words, this vision of Christ, John could barely look at it. You know, you don't look right at the sun. If you do, you're going to hurt your eyes. He could barely look at this vision for what he wrote down for us. It comes to us, I think, very clear from the very beginning of the book in chapter 1 that the book of Revelation has a lot to tell us and teach us about the Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now there in verse 1, we're also told that this revelation of Christ is also about what? Quote, the things that must soon take place. The things that must soon take place. So in other words, it's about Christ and it's also about what is to come in the life of the church in this world in the last days. That's probably the part that arouses so much curiosity in many people. Uh, But these things are given to us that you and I might be forewarned and forearmed, prepared for the fight, made ready to endure to the end and to conquer in Christ. It's to show us, if you've ever read uh, William Hendrickson's book on Revelation, More Than Conquerors, uh, that's really what it's about. It's, it's showing us that we conquer in Christ, no matter how it may look to the eyes of flesh, no matter how things may seem, God's people will conquer in Jesus Christ in the end. Now, verse 1, if you have the King James, it says that these things are quoted, uses the word signified. Signified. I think that's an important word to be kept in here in, in the translation, that the things that are to come are signified to us in this book. What does that mean? Well, it means they're signified. They're told to us. They're they're painted for us in in a picture form. Revelation has been said to be, uh, it's been called a picture book of sorts. And anybody who's taken the time to read through it knows that to be the case. Most of Revelation, not all of it, most of it is in the form of these these grand pictures and word pictures uh, that teach us. Now, I think this alone, that even that word in verse 1, the very first verse of the book, should warn us against an overtly, an overly literal method of interpretation. John tells us right in the very first verse, these things that were to come were signified. In other words, they're painted for us in pictures, and so we have to be careful with being too literal in our interpretation of what comes to follow in the book. Now, as we go through the book, some of these signs and images, thankfully, will be interpreted for us. Remember when Jesus taught the parables in the Gospels? Some of them like the parable of the sower, he explains the whole thing. Almost to the last detail, other parables he kind of told and left us to kind of figure it out. Well, some of the things in Revelation, he tells us right up front, here's what this symbol means right here. Here's what the other symbol means right there. Look at Revelation 1.20. talks about the stars and the lampstands. In Revelation 1.20, Jesus himself tells us, he goes, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are what? The angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So thankfully when you start off, he starts telling us what certain things stand for. Now other signs and symbols aren't so easily explained to us in, in the book. And they will require that you and I follow the rule of interpretation known as the analogy of faith. That's a fancy way of saying you let the Bible interpret the Bible. You let Scripture interpret Scripture. And so what you have to do is look for how those same images and symbols are used elsewhere in Scripture and see what they mean there. And that gives us a clue to what they mean when John uses them here in Revelation. 
Lord willing, that's what we're going to do as we go through this book in the coming weeks and months when we study the book of Revelation. Well, that brings us to the third thing we're told about in these first three verses of the book, that there is a great blessing promised to us in its pages. Not only is it from Jesus Christ, not only is it about Jesus Christ and about the things that must soon come to, to, come to pass, but he tells us right at the get-go that there is a blessing. Blessed, it's the same word you find back in the Beatitudes. Blessed is the, you know, blessed are the peacemakers, all these things. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. Now, if that, if that doesn't motivate you to want to study the book of Revelation, I don't know what will. You know, it's almost as if the Lord is saying, you know, I know that some people are going to find this book really difficult. So I'm going to promise you a blessing right at the start to motivate you, to let you power through and not be discouraged from trying to study and understand. Now, I think it's instructive that the book of Revelation begins with a promise of blessing to those who read and hear and keep what's written in it. And you might know it also ends, the whole book ends, with a warning of cursing to anyone who would hear the words of this book and then try to add to or take away anything from it. There's a very, very clear structure in this book, Revelation 22, 18 to 19, and it's right towards the very end of the book. He says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of of this book, of this prophecy, God will what? Take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. So we want to be careful as we study. We We don't add to, we don't take away. You never add to God's word. I believe that, I think it's not without reason that this warning is at the very end of the Bible. Not just the end of the book of Revelation. It's in the, at the end of, the, of all of Scripture. And I think we need to be careful that in no way do we add to Scripture. And in no way do we take away from Scripture at all. May you and I be diligent in keeping what is written here as well as not adding to or taking away anything that the Lord has given to us here for our benefit in this book or in all of God's Word. Well, the first thing John tells us here in that verse is that there's a great blessing promised to believers who do what? Read the book aloud. Read the book aloud. There's a blessing for the one who reads it out loud. In other words, there's a blessing for the preacher. So I'm selfishly preaching through this book. I get to have a blessing from it. He says the same word, he uses the same word here for reading that Paul uses in 1 Timothy 4.13. You might wonder sometimes, I don't know if you ever thought about this. You ever look at the order of worship? Don't say this out loud. Why do we do what we do? Why do we have, for instance, a scripture reading that has nothing directly to do with the sermon? Why did I read Genesis 21 this morning? Why do we do that every Sunday? Well, it's because of what Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.13. He says, until I come to Timothy, until I come, devote yourself. He doesn't just say, hey, you know, make sure you read the the word of God in, in worship. He says, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture. Same word that John uses here to exhortation and to teaching. Devote yourself to those things. Well, Paul instructed Timothy to devote himself to this kind of reading, to reading before the congregation, which also involves, of course, uh, what he says about exhortation and, and teaching. He's not just telling Timothy, and John's not just telling us, hey, read it. Go home and read it. Go home and read it. But it's more than that. He's, he's thinking of public worship, what we're doing right here this morning. 
Paul has in mind the public reading or reading out loud of Scripture to be done in the public worship of God's people on the Lord's Day. Well, that's what John's talking about here, too. Blessed is the one who reads it out loud, reads it publicly is what he's really getting in mind, getting at there. Now, some might say that there's no longer a need for any such thing in the worship of God by God's people these days. After all, they'll say, well, you know, this is, this is how the argument goes. Well, they didn't, nobody had a Bible back then. It was only the pastors and teachers that had copies of Scripture. Well, now I have ten Bibles on my shelf at home. So, you know, we can, make the, we can make the service much shorter, Pastor. We can just skip all these different readings. Well, Paul says different. We've got to make sure that we're not trying to be wiser than God or even the Apostle Paul, for that matter. We need to read out loud. We need to read and study God's Word as individuals, but we also need to read God's Word in worship as we do here every morning. There's no substitute for hearing the Word of God being read and taught and preached in public worship. Your own personal study is important. I hope you all read the Bible on a regular basis as, as your time permits. I know we're all busy. I hope you, you take advantage of all the different study helps we have, all the different things you have online. Our, our forefathers would have never imagined being able to have a few clicks on your phone and listen to all kinds of sermons from all over the world and read all kinds of great things. But there's no substitute for hearing the Word of God preached, read, and, and taught. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 89, says this, How is the Word, the Word of God, how is the Word made effectual to salvation? Answer, the Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. Do we actually believe that? Does the average believer actually think that way? Do they think that the, the most powerful weapon or tool in the toolbox, so to speak, for evangelism is what happens on a Sunday morning? I would guess most probably don't think that. Well, the Westminster Divines thought differently. They said the reading is good. The reading is God uses that. But he uses preaching especially, and so we should think of it that, that way. Now, there's no doubt why John tells us there that there's also prom- a blessing promised to those who hear, to those who hear it. In other words... What, you know, if he says that blessed is the one who hears the, the reading, the out loud reading of this word, uh, there must be a reason for it. You and I must really need to hear the message of this book. It must be given to us for good reason. If we don't read it and hear it and keep it, we won't be equipped for what God would have us to do with whatever we, whatever we read here in its pages is for our benefit. It's to equip us for life in this world, life this side of, of heaven. Now, thirdly, there's a blessing promised to those who what? Verse 3, keep what is written in it. Now, that's the key, isn't it? I know it would be easy for us to say, well, you know, I, the pastor read it, I heard it, there's a promised blessing, we're all good. Thanks, amen, close the book and go home. Uh, James one twenty two tells us this, something similar. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, what? Deceiving yourselves. Be doers of the word and not... It's good to be a hearer. It's it's much better to be a hearer than not. But James tells us, just like John does here in Revelation uh, 1.3, the blessing is for those who not just hear the word, but do or keep it. And if we hear the word and don't keep it, what are we doing? we, we, We might say we're kidding ourselves. We're deceiving ourselves if we do that. Now, isn't that the point back in verse 1 when he, John tells us that this book is given, quote, to show to whom? Who's the book for? 
It's easy to run right by it when you read it. It's verse 1. In order, it's given in order, quote, to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Who is the book of Revelation written for? Who, who is its primary audience? The servants of the risen and ascended Christ. That's not some special class of Christian. It's, if you're a Christian, that's you. And if you're not a servant of Christ, then guess what you also aren't? A Christian. Are you a servant of God? Have you turned to the Savior Jesus Christ by faith for salvation from your sin? Have you been, according to verse 5, have you been freed from your sins by His blood? Christians, real Christians, are believers first, but they are also followers of Christ and servants of Christ. They are doers of the word and not just hearers only. So the book of Revelation, according to the opening verses here, this book is, is a book that's given to you and I to edify, to build us up, to encourage us, to instruct us, to equip us as believers. It's, it's a book that's not just to be read or even understood, like it's a puzzle, but it's also a book that's to be kept or obeyed. In other words, Revelation, this book of Revelation is meant to change your life. It's not just for curiosity's sake. It's meant to change our lives. May the Lord Jesus Christ, whose revelation this is and whom it is about, be pleased to make it, as he says here, a great blessing to us as we read it, as we hear it, read and preached, and as we learn to keep the things that are written in it to the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this book. We thank you that you give us uh, such motivation, even in the opening verses, to read it, to hear it read, uh, and to keep what is written in it, that you tell us it's from you. Lord, that you gave it to your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, to give to John through an angel that we might see all the things or read about all the things that you showed to John, the things that must soon take place. We thank you that you motivate us even by telling us there's a great blessing in it, that if we read it out loud, if we read it even in worship, if we hear it read and we keep what's written in its pages, that you will bless us, Lord. And all your, all of your word is a blessing to us, that you make it Uh, useful to us that you renew our minds and transform our lives by it we pray that you would do just that that you would give us a right understanding of this book as as of all of your word that we might be encouraged by it that we might be edified by it that we might be built up in our faith that we might have the curtain pulled back so to speak and understand what you're doing in this world through your king that you've set on your holy hill even christ your son and our lord and redeemer And we pray that you would build us up, make us useful, give us grace to endure, as this book tells us to do over and over again, to to keep the faith, to keep uh, our testimony of the Word of God and the testimony of Christ before a dying world. And we pray that you might use us as we do that by your grace, that, that sinners might come to believe in Christ and turn to him and have life in his name, and by him to be freed from their sins by his blood. We lift up all these things to you in his name. Amen.